0: Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe.
1: I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) Hello, beloved listeners. We're back again today, and today is a beautiful Seattle fall sunny day. Just gorgeous. But we would rather be here talking to you about Herman Melville's Billy Budd, Course, we're going to have to throw in Bartleby the Scrivener whenever we mention Melva because we love that story so much. And then uh, we're going to talk about an adaptation that was very interesting by a French director named um, Claire Denis, right? I got that name right, Claire yep. Denis, and that is Beau Travail. So uh, let's get started. I guess uh, first of all I should tell you that we read these books together out loud and as the reader They were the most challenging books (laughs) I have ever read aloud, evs. Because they were written in the 1800s, and the punctuation, it isn't so much the words, that wasn't too bad, but the punctuation and the use of commas, certainly by Melville, was completely different than really than we do today. Because it's sort of like, we use commas, okay, comma is intended to set aside something maybe pause sort of a short stop to think about what just happened that that's one complete thing and this is a connected but different thing no if I did that then the sentence didn't make sense sometimes and I had to read like through the commas in order to connect all the bits it was very difficult so I I think I really deserve like a lot of medals for that.
0: I'll give you props you did Thank a great job you. it wasn't hard to follow along as the listener
1: good oh that was of course the main thing I was worried about it's like oh did that even make sense <laughs> and yeah we'll have to read a couple of examples later
0: but they some of these sentences are very long and complex so
1: yeah but I have to say it, it allowed me to reassess my feelings about Melville as a writer which is, I think, very worthwhile because it reassessed it to the positive side. Well, I don't know, do you want to talk about your experiences with Billy Budd and uh, Scrivener first? I think they're less torturous than mine. Uh, none. What? I hadn't
0: read any Melville. I knew that I should at some point and that it would probably happen. And that's it.
1: What about your sort of cultural context for Melville? Did you have any knowledge, opinions, attitudes, anything about
0: Melville at all? I mean, I I knew Melville as a writer. Um, I guess we should mention that he's most famously the author of Moby Dick, yeah, obviously. And they don't tend to assign Moby Dick in high school anymore. So I knew that uh, Melville wrote about maritime themes a lot about being a sailor. And a couple of people that I very much respect who highly esteem Moby Dick, so shouts out to Daniel Webbin. And the only thing I knew about Billy Budd was that I I had this vague impression that it was about like a young, beautiful sailor and another guy that's jealous of him and that there's underlying homoerotic tension is the way that people tend to interpret
1: it. And that's it. Uh, For me, my cultural association with Melville runs a lot deeper because so much earlier in time, there's always so much joking about Moby Dick and about how boring it is or how long it is or how torturous it is and how complex it is and that's really totally had turned me away from Moby Dick and wanting to even try to read it uh, I did have a friend who read it and said it was great she just skipped all the chapters that had to do with seafaring and just read the part that was the story mm-hmm. which I don't know that is an option, I suppose. It is blasphemy to those who if, if love Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, having reread these, having reread Bartleby and Billy Budd, I think I might consider that it's some time before I die to try to read Moby Dick. Why not, right? I mean, he is a great writer. I have to say, it changed my mind to going, okay, Melville deserves his place in the canon. Uh, now, when I was in high school, I read. Bartleby the Scrivener and Billy Budd, they were both assigned. Did they ever assign Moby Dick in high school? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe for extra. Not. I don't think. I, you, I mean, I'm sure there'll be people who will say, I had to read it, you know, but I think it was unusual, you know, because it was so long. That's why you read Billy Budd. Right. And that's why you read Bartleby the Scrivener, which were short stories, a.k.a. Melville style, meaning they're really kind of novellas looking back on it i remember reading bartleby and you know it was all right I, I don't know it was okay i remember reading billy budd and just hating it hating it oh i hated it so much and i read it this time when i read it this time i thought oh i totally see why i hated it because melville should never be assigned to anybody under who is like under college age i think i mean if you go into college even then People may still be too immature. Even if you can get your head around the writing, and you have to be a very sophisticated reader to do that, the themes, unless you're an extremely mature young person, the themes, they're existential. They're about the vagaries of humanity and and deep psychological insights. And certainly with Billy Budd, they are about um, life, death, redemption, eternity, God, the kinds of things that most certainly not me in high school, couldn't have given a crap about.
0: I think too, at least in Billy Budd for sure, one of the biggest ones is about sort of duty and like what you yeah. should do. And I think that that will not resonate to a lot of young modern readers because of course you're like,
1: that's dumb. Yeah. Yeah, Don't you, do that. Freedom. Freedom. This is a free country. America's about freedom. And not about doing for others or i mean even
0: or just adhering to the rules really right and we'll talk about it more later i think i found that very intriguing because it's not a modern sensibility but i think it is a very in some ways very noble sensibility very noble
1: and and really eternal and and it's not it's out of fashion but it still is applicable and i think again you really hit something there because until i really became a parent now all of a sudden duty totally makes sense and it should also make sense, like if you're a, a, a decent, upstanding, right-minded, say, professional, a lawyer, a doctor, not everybody is. But those who are, they have a sense of duty, They have, they, have and they have a very real duty in their professional life. And then everybody who does anything, really, what is my duty? And that's one of the problems, I think, that we have in this country, is that the idea of of individual personal liberty and freedom, just absolutely has crushed duty down so that it, no it's, one ever considers how will this impact other people, and not just my neighbor or somebody I know, but how will it impact the culture as a whole and and people of my community and my country. And that book really does. In this case, it's the Navy, mm-hmm. but um, the Navy as an arm of the British Empire, which is their country. We say up front, we're not pro-colonialists and we're not uh, supporters of the old British Empire or anything that they did, but just as a symbol for one's community. The ship setting, I think, is uniquely positioned to
0: be a great venue to explore that theme because discipline on a ship is so important. Your entire world is contained within this very small vessel. And so ship's discipline and duty and respect to the captain, the way that that's organized is life or death. Like it's so important. And so I think
1: that helps explore that. Bring it, bring it home. Yeah. Yeah. Also the, the close quarters of the ship. Not only is it life or death in, in terms of, well, if we're attacked, or there's a storm, or you know, everybody has to know what they have to do, But and this is something Melville brings out so beautifully in the psychology, the theme of how every little thing you do, how you are, practically how you breathe, creates a social impact. It gives a message about who you are, what you mean, what you intend, how people interpret it, so that there is no just hanging. Just doing stuff, you know. It's like the tone of your voice, every word you choose. You speak to somebody once, and all of a sudden, everybody on the ship is going, Well, what was, why does he talk to that guy from over there? And what are they talking about? And what's going on? And totally. So it does create that claustrophobic, insular society where things can really boil up, which is, of course, perfect for Melville's story and his idea of exploring the injustice of really the organic processes of society and how sometimes you just have to bow down under the weight of it there's nothing you can do to assert your exceptionalism or your liberty or your individualism and not necessarily and I don't think he's saying that's good that you know injustice can reign and 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 sometimes the only way to keep stability is to have injustice
0: mm-hmm
1: I don't think Melville agrees with that or likes it, but he sees that it's true. Yeah, so uh, where do we go from here? Woo! Okay, well, maybe we should start with just a very, very brief few facts about Melville. I mean, he's a famous guy. He's got a gigantic Wikipedia page. Uh, so we'll just say a couple of facts about him. That's his dad. Not bad. <laughs> Melville was pretty cute, actually. So there. Uh, <laughs> it's a kind of a, a large uh, Wikipedia page, and... He had a very, very full and well-documented life, and so you can go and read about that. I won't get into it too much, but he was—you uh, know—he lived till he was seventy-two. So he was born in eighteen nineteen, died in eighteen ninety-one. So he was truly a nineteenth-century man. He was born uh, the day before me, August first. Oh yeah, he was indeed, indeed. But he was—he was, he was a, a an East Coaster, uh, born in New York City. He worked in various places and. Um, and he was in, ended up in Massachusetts, and yeah, had a lot of different jobs. The thing that I think, to me, seems to have impacted his writing a great deal, obviously, because his novels and stories of seafaring, was that he did end up going to sea at one point. He was in uh, the, I, I don't know if you call it the merchant marine. I don't really quite understand how that works, but he was in ships that were not Navy ships, that were private companies' ships. And he traveled around a lot. And he ended up in Tahiti and Hawaii and hmm. saw a lot of the world. And it really had a big impact on his attitude toward non-white people. Because he saw cultures and he was able to absorb information about the cultures and have respect for the people and so forth. So he was uh, you know, fairly aware and conscious of other, other types of people. And he also um, was, you know, was a successful writer for a while, he ended up not being able to really make a living with it, though, which is really, you know, kind of sad. But he ended up becoming a customs inspector in New York, which was also naval-related in a way. Uh, I guess I should add he, he ended up being in the U.S. Navy at one point, too. So a lot of seafaring. And you can tell he loved it. It was really in his blood because the way he loves to go on and on and lovingly describing the rigging, Totally, <laughs> <laughs> the ship, that kind of thing, <laughs> and the history of naval battles, and yeah. yeah, why this was this way, and and all kinds of things like that. Um, and then, in the end of his life, um, well, he ended up giving up writing fiction, and he ended up just writing poetry at the end of his life, hmm. which was not particularly successful. I don't know if it was good or not. So, and then he uh, died. Oh. Billy Budd, I'm reading Wikipedia here, <laughs> so. But Billy Budd was unfinished at his when he died. Oh, interesting. It, was, it wasn't published till 1924. Did someone finish it or did they just publish it as I it is? I don't. It just says. Okay. I'm just reading Wikipedia, man. All right. I only know what's in Wikipedia. So, really, that's pretty much all I feel like I need to say about Melville as a person. I'm not really fascinated by him, by his personality. That might change, but I'm not, so I'm not like our other podcast uh, subjects. I have usually read at least one book, depending on what the library has and what's available. One or two or three books on them, and you know, like looking stuff up and trying to compile a lot of information. I'm not, I'm just not feeling that urge with Melville. There's plenty out there for people to read if they're interested fair enough okay so the only things i've read of melville's is bartleby billy and billy Budd, and same with you having that read to you so you know for people who are into melville he has a very rich large body of work so i'm sure there are others who are going to be able to say a lot more to the point than we are but this is just our point of view from our reading where should we start should we maybe we should start with bartleby Bartleby's light, too. It's good to start out with. I love Bartleby. Bartleby's one of my new, very favorite stories. It's a good story. It's yeah. a good story. Oh, well, I work in an office, and now you work in an office. hmm And working in an office, I mean, everybody has got to be able to relate to Bartleby. It's
0: kind of incredible. He's the most passive character, probably, in English literature, and yet you you just really love him
1: <laughs> i know he's so he, he, and the way that melville does it is that um basically it goes from being really kind of a comedy of human errors to a tragedy of existential proportions totally amazing, amazing really an amazing writing writing and i think one of the best short stories so uh we're going to spoil these stories by the way just you know Otherwise, we can't talk about them. So basically, Scrivener was a copyist in in the old days. They didn't have Xerox machines. And so, when you needed to have documents copied, especially a lot of legal offices in particular, would have people who would just sit at these tall desks all day long and copy documents. And so, how well you wrote and how fast you wrote was very important. So, the narrator of the story is an attorney, he's got an office. He's got a couple of uh, kind of eccentric copyists, uh, very funny types. Melville goes into great lengths to describing everybody's appearance and their characters and very funny stuff. Mm -hmm. So Bartleby comes in. He ends up hiring him. And Bartleby is just a miracle. He is a miracle. He's quiet. He just copies and copies really fast. Turns out the work. The guy's just loving it. Then he wants Bartleby to do something outside of just copying. In other words, these guys get paid by the amount they copy. But like if you ask them to run down to the store to get stamps, they don't get paid anything for that or whatever errand. Or I guess what they would do is uh, you would take the document you had created that you copied and the other, another person would take the original document and you would read your document. And they would check it to make sure there weren't any mistakes. You didn't get paid for that. That was just extra. And then Bartleby, when he's asked to do this, he brings forth his deathless line. Here's the section where it happened. Hopefully I can read it. Do it justice with all these weird commas in here. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him, rapidly stating what I wanted him to do, namely to examine a small paper with me imagine my surprise nay my consternation when without moving from his privacy bartleby in a singularly mild firm voice replied i would prefer not to (laughs) i'll just read a little bit more because it's just so funny i sat a while in perfect silence rallying my stunned faculties immediately it occurred to me that my ears had deceived me or bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning I repeated my request in the clearest tone I could assume, but in quite as clear a one came the previous reply. I would prefer not to. <laughs> and it's so wonderful
0: because he keeps asking him to do little things, this or that, Bartleby says, "I prefer not to," and that's his answer to
1: everything. And what do you do with that? It I know. just shuts
0: everything down. Well, and
1: then and then he d- d- he asks in various ways. He a- and then he asks why, and he says, "I would prefer not to." And he says, "But can't you tell me you must do, do you not like uh, the the streets or you know I don't know whatever?" He asks him, He goes, "I would prefer not to." <laughs> And then he would call in the other copyists and say, well, what would you think of someone who refuses to do the reading and checking? And they go, I would fire him. I would get rid of him right away. (laughs) And,
0: and Bartleby just sits there. And so it's interesting that he's at first it's, it's almost like he's refusing to do work outside of what he's getting paid to do. But then at some point it starts to become kind of depression. Well, then
1: then he starts to refuse to even do copying. And he sits in his little cubby. And the the lawyer is like just tearing his hair out. Yet, obviously, the narrator of this story is a really decent guy. Mm -hmm. And a very tender heart. And maybe even an easy touch. And he totally, he can't bring himself to fire Bartleby. He just can't get himself to do it. He, well, he tries, too, a couple well, of times. Well, eventually, but at first he can't. Right. He just can't. And then one day he comes to the office, in the, like early or on a weekend, and the door is locked in from the inside, and he can't get in. And he's knocking, and he's knocking. And the door is finally answered by Bartleby, who's in his, like, dis dishable, And he says, you know, come back later. Yeah. <laughs> like it's his house or something. <laughs> and then he does he comes back like so ends up Bartleby has ended up living in the office right it's so funny and then finally he just gets fed up he can't take it anymore and then he does try that. then he finally does okay. try to fire him right to which Bartleby responds I would prefer not to <laughs> well Bartleby just sta- he just stands there but then what happens is he finally does get him to leave right and he finally does fire him no he packs up the office around him and moves his office because he
0: literally oh, that's right. cannot get rid of him. Oh, I thought
1: that, that okay, what I'm thinking of yeah. it happened later. So he really can't get rid of him. So then what happens is Bartleby ends up going to the office anyway. So the new uh, the new uh, tenant is enraged and they go after him and say, you got to do something about this guy. And He's like, what can I do?
0: <laughs> right, and he tries to get Bartleby to come live with him. <laughs> yeah. And Bartleby's like, I would prefer not to. <laughs> and, and so Bartleby ends up sleeping in like the hallway outside the office eventually.
1: Well, uh, of the new office. And he won't go. And, and, in fact, he even says, I'll rent you a I'll rent your room. Right. And he's like, no. He doesn't want the room. Here's a, a great passage from the book. Nothing so aggravates an earnest person as passive resistance. <laughs> great insight. If the individual so resisted be of not an inhumane temper... And the resisting one perfectly harmless in his passivity then in the better moods of the former he will endeavor charitably to construe to his imagination what proves impossible to be solved by his judgment even so for the most part i regarded bartleby in his ways poor fellow i thought he means no mischief it is plain he intends no insolence his aspect sufficiently evinces that his eccentricities are involuntary because there is that part part right when he stops working and where he would just stand facing the wall. Mm-hmm. i like, dude, I feel you,
0: dude. Yeah, so it gets to the point where where he ends up, they take him to jail because <laughs> he's become a loiterer and yeah. and everything. But to get to that point, there's something so poignant, I guess, just about how... He won't accept anything, and yet he is an inconvenience to everyone, and yet he's not doing anything, and he just, he stopped. He his, stopped. Mere, his
1: mere <laughs> presence is driving people yeah. nuts, because he's not fitting in. book we never know his name but the narrator um he gets called that Bartleby's been taken to jail and he doesn't have anything to do with it he didn't want it to happen and he goes to the tombs is what the the jails in, in New York were called and Bartleby is it's like it's kind of broken him in a way and he says I didn't I didn't send you here Bartleby it wasn't me and Bartleby just refuses to Open up, or be glad to see him, or to accept anything—money, anything—and he refuses to eat. Back in those days, you did not get food provided to you, or if you did, it was just really bad stuff at the jail. Somebody had to pay for your food, so if you wanted to eat uh, or have anything that was even palatable, you had to get money from somewhere and pay the grub man to to provide your food and this is what the narrator does he gives him money and says make sure that he's got a nice meal hot hot stew whatever every day and Bartleby refuses to consume it and he ends up starving to death in the yard in the yard just lying in on his side little bundle yeah. yeah
0: and yeah it's horribly tragic and it's kind of, it's inscrutable, like you never get a sense of his internal feelings, whether he's just so depressed or whether he has a lot of feelings happening. And yet, at the same
1: time, you completely understand because it's such a human impulse, I think. Well, they, but, but, but Melville, at the end, he does tell you why. That basically, it was the existential crisis of Bartleby's life, of facing the, you know, once you get down to it, that nothing matters you know, it's interesting because you're know, you living in a life where everything is ephemeral, everything is temporary. So, what really does anything matter? And some people are able to sort of wake up and enlighten and say, well, it doesn't matter in that way, but it matters moment by moment how I live and how I treat people and what I do. And, and that does matter, you know, because it's, it's about my soul. And it seems like Bartleby lost his soul, if you want to talk in the language of that time. And he doesn't see any point in anything. It's that ultimate existential disease. That's what I th- I think it, it comes out to. I agree. And I think Melville pretty much says it in the final chapter. Because what happened is, he got a report about Bartleby, and it said that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk in the dead letter office in Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change in administration. When I think over this rumor, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters? Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to a pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames. For by the cartload they were annually burned. Sometimes from out of the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for perhaps moulders in the grave, a banknote sent for it in swiftest charity, he whom it would relieve nor eats nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing, hope for those who died unhoping. Good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On the errands of life, these letters speed to death. Ah, Bartleby. Ah, humanity. I mean, that says it, baby. Great ending. I don't know anybody else who could have carried off an ah, humanity like Melville. Yeah, that was great. So, yeah, I, I I relate to Bartleby. I feel that way about my job all the time. <laughs> totally. Like, I don't want to do this. It's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's the downward spiral, but somehow Melville makes it so touching and beautiful. Yeah. Sort of like an angel just kind of like fluttering down to the bottom. Bye, Bartleby. Bartleby. I'd love to. Wouldn't it be great to have a dog named Bartleby? That would be a good dog name. That'd be a great dog name. Bartleby the Scrivener. Well, yeah. But Bartleby for short. Bart, of course, if you have to. Anyway, it's a wonderful one. And it's just funny. I mean, I think you got it. Hopefully you got a sense of how much we enjoyed it and how funny it was. So moving along to Billy Budd. It was well written. Yes. It was way more, the English was way more complicated than uh, Bartleby. It seemed like Melville got more and more convoluted in his writing, much like Henry James did mm-hmm. as he went on.
0: This one actually takes place on a ship, and, and so there's a lot of naval
1: lore and stuff that he digresses into. And he also gives a lot of history of the time uh, when the, the Nor mutiny took place which was very um, threatening to the British naval power. So this is in the days when there was still impressment. And impressment was basically drafting people. But they didn't do a draft. What they did is they sent gangs from various ships out, and they would roam towns, and they would uh, basically kidnap men. A lot of times they would be drugged, maybe at a tavern, or they hit them over the head, or whatever. I know. And they would just take them off and you're on the ship. Hey, and you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. And you just they better just do
0: that. <laughs> and there's nothing you can
1: do. You better just coexist. Do yeah, it. do a job if you want to live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But because of that system of there, first of all, there being really pretty vicious physical punishments for things. And... The, a lot of the crew being impressed and going, I don't really want to be here. And they don't even know how long they're going to be there. I mean, they could do these cruises out to Tahiti or Hawaii or whatever, and they'd be gone for five years, you know? And their family may not even knowing where they are. Maybe they get lucky and they'll be able to send a letter or something. And so there were groups of very disaffected people from day one in the uh, cruise. So... The the punishments and the rigors were very harsh when it came to anything like mutiny.
0: And so mutiny, obviously, uh, probably most people know this, but a mutiny is when the people, the crew crew members on a ship turn against the authority and the captain and attempt to take over the ship anyway. Yeah. So it's treason.
1: Yeah. And it's treason if it happens on a Navy ship. Right. Yeah. And certainly can happen on non-navy ships and that and actually Melville took part in a mutiny in one of the merchant ships that he was on and ended up you know sailing away and sailing away and and doing some work on land for a while and then signing up for another ship somewhere else so he knew where of mutiny's origins were and why men did it and the kinds of things they thought and the way they would sidle up to it. And that comes through in this book. The story really hammers hard with a big giant mallet on your head that this mutiny wasn't just one ship. It was a fleet-wide mutiny, at least the fleet that was you know centered in a certain area. And it was very, very dangerous for the authority and... They squashed it pretty hard, and they were always on lookout at this point. So the story of Billy Budd takes place shortly after that. Um, so everyone's kind of jumpy about the whole prospect of a mutiny breaking out again. And so the story
0: opens with Billy Budd, and he's young. He's probably, I don't know, 19, 20, something like that. Yeah, And he's... Melville cannot stop describing how beautiful he is, how
1: angelic, how Anglo, how everything. Oh, I know. It's just, it it is, he's clearly trying to set him up as the exterior being the symbolic of the interior. Yeah. And he he says that he is the handsome sailor, capital H, capital S. Yeah, he starts out talking
0: with sort of this social observation about how in a group of sailors, there's often that one guy who's like... Really, alpha basically, and just like handsome and charismatic, but then like has a really good character, and how all the other sailors like to
1: follow him, and yeah, that there's that there's something fundamental, like archetypal, like an angel, uh, and that angels just really kind of don't get the socio-political, interpersonal um, types of complications, politicking, yeah. yeah, politicking. There we go. They don't get politics. Yeah, he the description of Billy. But goes on for like pages. At one point, he was young, and despite his all but fully developed frame, and in aspect looked even younger than he really was. This was owing to a lingering adolescent expression in the as yet smooth face, all but feminine in purity of natural complexion. But where, thanks to his sea going, the lily was quite suppressed, and the rose had some ado visibly to flush through the tan.
0: and that's just the face that's just the complexion we haven't even gotten
1: to the body and the hair and (laughs) i mean just what he just goes on and on and And to the point where i mean i really can see the 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 more modern interpretation of the homoerotic aspects of it and so forth and i think you know yet there's some interesting points there but i think just going straight for oh this is homosexual love that's been suppressed i don't know i mean I really think. Well, that, I think it comes in more as we start to talk about what actually happened yeah, in the story, because because Billy Budd, I think he's depicted with such sensuality, because I really think he's just trying to show that this is an angel.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, Melville is describing Billy Budd as like a
1: Renaissance painter painted a beautiful yeah. youth, Botticelli, like a Botticelli so. angel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and he does talk about his character as well, but I think that he's trying to to show that. Billy Budd is almost an allegory for beauty or for um, the beauty in life that human venality can't just help but crush yeah and destroy yeah he's too good figure in that way yeah Yeah. he's like Vincent in Starry Starry Night the song he's too beautiful (laughs) for this
0: world (laughs) right and so he's He's so innocent and pure of heart that he starts out on on this one ship where everyone loves him, and he ends up being impressed. Maybe that's a merchant ship, and he gets impressed yeah. into a navy ship.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, that's another point. Yeah, you can they they would just take people off ships too. They commandeer him. Yeah. They commandeer him and they take him. And the thing is, yeah, he on the other ship he is a, an agent of amity. And harmony, and you know, even the captain and everybody can see that he's an influence for drawing people together and making them work better. The captain's like, "Don't take Billy Bud. You know, my ship is going to fall
0: apart if you take him." <laughs> yeah, I then, know. And then the captain of the navy ship is like, "I'm sorry, bro. I've got to yeah, take
1: him. He's, he's the best one. <laughs> yeah. He's clearly, you know, clearly prime uh, cut here for our <laughs> ship." Exactly. And throughout the book, there are very long um, discussions about not only the current politics, but uh, old seafaring, about the gods, about religion, and a lot about philosophy. I think the other thing that they're saying is both that Billy seems to be an angel, but that human beings are angel in their natural state. In that, Melville has probably really been influenced by a number of philosophers, particularly uh, the most famous one is Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He said that that it's like human in the state of nature is good and it's when you say this is mine i built a fence or i want this or you know economy money you know anyway. capitalism capitalism, capitalism baby but even way before capitalism right once you start uh, creating these ideas beliefs religions all these societal structures that the perfection of the human nature is is tainted or destroyed or damaged in some way so what we're seeing with Billy is we're seeing quote man meaning supposedly meaning humans but they didn't really contemplate women all right I'll stop that now Um, but man in in the state of nature as an angel that's what Billy's also showing is that enlightenment idea of pure human being. I think that's important to, to note. And anyway, he goes into Melville, a lot of that discussion about that. And then he also spends a great deal of time outlining captain veer who they, they nicknamed starry veer because basically they thought he had his head in his cl- in the clouds. Cause he's one of the guys who would have read Rousseau, probably the only one on the ship who did. He's the captain of the Navy ship. Of the Navy ship, thank you, who took Billy over. So he had his head in the stars. Right. And he's very philosophical. And it sounds like he was very humane and caring, but he was a naval officer, and simply, again, by his position and by the system, he had to be and was somewhat... Uh, could take very harsh measures, could you know kill people... Do wars, blow people up, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Because he operated within this this system, uh, a lot of his fine ideas and a lot of his philosophizing really just caused him more pain than helping him, in a way. Yeah. And then the third guy, Claggart. Claggart. Right. Uh, Spends a great deal of time talking about Claggart, and Claggart is sort of the opposite of Billy Budd,
0: and he's entirely embroiled in politics on
1: the ship, and and he's high enough up to be able to uh, pull strings and manipulate. And he decides he's stylish, but he's not good looking. Right. He's got a big chin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's good looking except for his chin. Apparently, uh, that was a very funny but in bit. an oily kind of way or something. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, John Clegg, he's a master of arms, and I don't know, master of arms, I don't really know how that exactly relates to Fort topman. I mean, he's not directly Billy's uh, supervisor or superior, uh, but he is superior to him. And he just decides, because of his rotten soul, that he hates Billy. There's something about Billy that disturbs him. That disturbs him greatly. And one of the interpretations and it seems like the one that they he kind of touches on in the book anyway is that it's it's like jealousy it's like uh, but beyond just regular jealousy it's like like the devil hating God hating an angel because just because their element like it's like fire hating water or something you know because water will will destroy it and so it's that kind of, that that level, that primeval kind of hatred that he just flares up in him against Billy. And Billy's like, wow, da, 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 no, nah, he's great. He's a great guy. He smiles at me and says hi. Billy has no idea. And it's funny because Billy has this old guy who's a friend of his and he says, old Jemmy Legs is what you call a claggart. Old Jemmy Legs is down on you. Jemmy Legs is down on me? Why is he down on me? You know? Jemmy Legs. Jemmy Legs. I do have to say, this going back to Jemmy Legs and why he isn't attractive in any way, this this is is hilarious to me because it's so learned. If you look this up in Wikipedia, you see exactly what he's talking about. It's like, Claggart was a man of about 5 and 30, somewhat spare and tall, yet of no ill figure upon the whole. His hand was too small and shapely to have been accustomed to hard toil. His face was a notable one. The features all... Uh, except the chin, cleanly cut as those on a Greek medallion, yet the chin, he says, recalled the prince of Reverend Doctor Titus Oates, a historical deponent with the clerical drawl in the time of Charles the Second. Okay, and and oh, and the fraud of the alleged Popish Plot. Okay, so that's just thrown in there about about the Popish Plot and Charles the Second. But if you look up a picture. Of Reverend Titus Oates, of course, it's just a painting, and you look at the chin, you go, "I know exactly what you're talking about." So I'm wondering, who is reading this? Who just knows what Do- Reverend Doctor Titus Oates's chin looks like? Yeah. Yeah. You know, how famous was this guy in these days? <laughs> I don't know. Good
0: question. Or was Melville just like that?
1: <laughs> I know exactly, exactly, because this is written in the 1900s, mm-hmm. and Charles II, you know, he came back on the throne in the in the 1700s, in the early 1700s. So this is like, you know, not not contemporaneous here, right? So who knows what this guy looks like? I just think it's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know. Does he mean that to be funny? That, you know, oh, he's making this illusion, and, uh, you know. And if you're in the know, wink, wink, you know what this is. Or did did his audience, just all like, who re- have read this, know this? You know.
0: Yeah, or maybe he was just reading at the library one day and thought that this guy's chin was so funny that he They had to had make to... a reference
1: to it. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what I mean. Is it like his own mm-hmm. in joke? And so, I don't know. But anyway, I just had to say it. Mm-hmm. So, if, so, really, take that description, look up Reverend Dr. Titus Oates and look at the chin, and you'll know exactly what this guy looks like. Do it now. Okay, <laughs> we're back. <laughs> anyway, okay, so, sorry, I got I, I interrupted you there, but I had to. No well, worries. Did I?
0: Uh, no, I was just trying to move it along, so um, in terms of the plot of the whole thing, because
1: it's a little convoluted. Well, I think it can be fairly simply summed up in that so they have. So he has to stand, So he's out to get Billy, basically. It basically. He tries to set Billy up as a, a mutineer, and it does. And Billy's not going for it. But he is able then to still blacken his name and 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 raise suspicion so he takes him to the captain accuses him of being a mountaineer now the uh, mountaineer mutineer <laughs> sorry mutineer a sorry a betrayal of the sea <laughs> <laughs> a betrayal of the mountain uh and so essentially um so he just drags him in there and the one thing that we didn't talk about billy and this is sort of the the achilles heel of this man of nature this this angelic being is he's if he gets upset, he stammers. It happens on occasion, but usually he's fine. Uh, but the more agitated he get, the worse he stammers. And probably as anybody knows who, sta- who stammers or has heard anything about stammering, that the more you want to not stammer, the more important it is for you to say what you want to say, the worse it gets. So he drags Billy in there. He thinks he's going to get a promotion He's doing so he, because he's doing so great. And everybody else thinks he's doing great. Everybody loves Billy except Claggart, who's out to get him. He d- brings him in and he accuses him of planning a mutiny. And actually of being the spearhead of the mutiny in front of Captain Veer. And Veer is like, his instinctive reaction is, I don't believe this. And everybody's instinctive reaction is that they don't believe this. But Claggard insists, and so Veer turns to Billy and says, so tell me. Uh, And Billy, all of a sudden, like the worst stammer, in that he's not even like coming up with a sound. He's like absolutely silenced by this. He cannot even get a sound out of his mouth. He's so just overwhelmed. He just automatically can't stop himself, and he punches claggart just suddenly punches him knocks him down and kills him with one blow so even though now we although he probably could have gotten out of that mutiny thing now he's killed a a superior officer right after the norm mutiny so basically that (laughs) so basically there has to be a drumhead court and veer he does not take part in it uh, because he's a witness but he gets the other officers there. But essentially his logic is, yeah, I could wait and take this to the main fleet and we could have a trial there, but the nor mutiny, the, the men will be looking to me as soon as they find out what happens. And if there's a mutiny brewing on this boat, I have got to take care of this right now. Uh, I don't think his logic is necessarily sound, but he's a captain alone on the boat. And if a mutiny happens, he's the one who's going to walk be walking the plank. The fact that even though he knows and believes and that Billy was nothing to do with it, he he totally knows he had he killed an officer, and so something has got to happen in his mind. This is what he has decided, and it's got to happen now. And he doesn't have time to 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 for the two weeks it'll take, or a month, or whatever, to sail back to the main fleet and have this handled. So he. Gets the drumhead court, and they take the evidence, and Billy doesn't deny anything, and everybody knows this happened. There's, you know, it's just, are we going to hang him? Uh, and did he have any? And and is it mitigating circumstances that this guy was lying about him and he couldn't speak? And basically, Veer leads the the court by the nose because they don't want to do it. They and left to their own devices, they will not condemn him. But Vera is like, well, you know, it's got to be this way. And, you know, this is the Navy and the NOR mutiny and you know, the men are looking to us and, you know, we've got to take care of this and they've got to see there's real discipline on this ship. And so essentially he gets them to condemn Billy and Vere is not a bad guy, but I think even though Melville doesn't get into it too much, I think he's scared with all his philosophy I think he's scared of what could happen if he let uh, someone who killed a superior officer, even if he kept him in the brig and he was imprisoned until they got back. I think he was he was afraid of the fact that this person is there and not been given the ultimate penalty.
0: I think to sort of in summary, it makes it sound a little bit more i don't know I have more sympathy with fear reading the story. Oh, I in the told way that, that Melville wrote it for I,
1: sure. Oh, I do too. I have some that's why he's not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I think he's wrong, but that doesn't make him a bad guy. But I think he was afraid. I think that's why he rushed it. Uh, anyway, so there's a, a a touching scene where Billy and Veer says, you know, this is how it's got to be, but I, you know, I know you're innocent of mutiny and you know you're like a son to me and he's like totally loving and supportive to Billy and Billy's like I understand. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. He's so I, <laughs> I totally understand. So <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> You're off the hook, and he doesn't want. And Billy doesn't want really anything to do with the 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 priest, which is a very interesting point of view of of Melville's about religion and the value of religion. Because Billy doesn't need it. Billy is one with God, right? And you the know. priest is like, yeah. He's like, he doesn't need me. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just stand here and you know, yeah. the, be his be his friend. And so then ultimately, Billy is hung. And his last words are, God bless Captain Veer, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then as the book ends, it's basically, Veer can feel that there is actually a mutinous rumble uh, or silence. No, rumble, actually, in the crew after they see Billy hung. Mm. And then he dismisses them and he has them do all kinds of busy work so that he can keep them from talking among themselves so it's almost like vere comes from this rigid point of view of these be the rules as i see them and philosophically this is what i should do by whatever his philosophy is i guess i i mean melville talks a lot about him but he doesn't really get into i don't think sufficiently his reasoning beyond oh we got to take care of this right away, so that, you know the men aren't affected by it.
0: My interpretation was that it had a lot to do with duty as a naval officer. That if he took Billy to the full naval court or mm-hmm. whatever, he knew the result would be the same, basically. And so he was like, "I'm gonna take care of this now and not draw it out." He killed a, a superior officer; he has to die. That's it, and it's my duty
1: to see it done. Yeah, I, I disagree from what i read is that it was standard procedure that you went to the main, main court mm. you did not take care of it out uh, of capital punishment unless it was absolutely necessary to the discipline and the ship mm. um and so you didn't make people who were the the colleagues of this guy judge him and hang him I read it differently. Maybe that's part of the the co- very complicated yeah. prose that kind of yeah. went over my head. But yeah, maybe maybe that was it. But that's what I saw. I saw the duty as being Billy's duty. Billy not trying to fight against it, but seeing that well, he did punch the guy and right. he killed him, and he's and and so this was a this was in in a way a, a total uh, breakdown of his duty to the ship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it's his duty to go to his death. See, that's where I was seeing the duty. Yeah, Captain Vere certainly d- talks about duty and he has to do his duty. But his interpretation of his duty, it just felt to me it was driven by fear. Mm-hmm. Fear of what was going to happen on the ship if he didn't do it. that That's how I saw it. So, so I think that's totally fair. Yeah. Okay, and so this is after Billy has punched the guy and, you know, everything is... Uh, He's been removed and the the ship's surgeon is there and they're looking at Claggart's body. But Captain Vere was now again motionless, standing absorbed in thought. Once again, starting, he vehemently exclaimed, Struck dead by an angel of God, yet the angel must hang. Full of disquietude and misgivings, the surgeon left the cabin. Was Captain Vere suddenly affected in his mind or was it but a transient excitement brought about by so strange and extraordinary happening? As to the drumhead court, it struck the surgeon as impolitic, if nothing more. The thing to do, he thought, was to place Billy Budd in confinement and in a way dictated by usage and postpone further action in so extraordinary a case to such time as they should join the squadron and then transfer it to the admiral. He recalled the unwanted agitation of Captain Vere and his ex- exciting exclamations so at variance with his normal manner. Was he unhinged? But assuming that he was, it were not so susceptible of proof. What then could he do? No worse trying situation is conceivable than that of an officer subordinated under a captain whom he suspects to be not mad indeed, but yet not quite unaffected in his intellect to argue his order to him would be insolence to resist him would be mutiny in obedience to captain Vere, he communicated to the lieutenants and captain of marine what had happened saying nothing as to the captain's state they stared at him in surprise and concern like him they seemed to think that such a matter should be reported to the admiral
0: There you go. All right. So that's
1: that's where that's I mean that's just the basis of my interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. So no, that that is sound. So anyway, uh, and then, um, uh, so then throughout the book, the really the questions are about the tensions between the various characters. And Billy, he's the most uninteresting character of all. I mean, he's just he's just la da 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 da, and. (laughs) Uh, he's there for people to look at and project upon or whatever. And Captain Veer certainly um, kind of saw him as this this light, but yet he Captain Veer seemed to lack the, in a way, the duty, fulfilling his duty as captain, of being, Is he does he have a duty to be just? I mean, I don't know, because, I mean, this is back in the day. Maybe it's just more of a duty to... Um, punish or to follow the but everybody in this book is saying it should be referred to the admiral he's jumping the gun here that's the
0: fundamental i guess irony The the tragic irony of the story is that he's carrying out the sentence as a captain and everything but really if he did go more by the circumstances instead of by the letter of the law yes yes he would respond to the situation much better and probably be able to make everyone
1: feel better about what happened right and it doesn't mean that Billy necessarily would have been hung right I mean I think that's part of it too because I mean by the time they got back to the squadron I remember it was something like weeks things would have calmed down and maybe investigations would have been made and things would have come to light about Jimmy Legg's behavior and about the lying about the mutiny And there could have been mitigation. I mean, doubtless Billy would have gone in prison or something like that would have happened. But but he didn't leave any window for that, like you said, by not responding to the, the real circumstance. He was jumping to this rigidity, which is very interesting about that. But, of course, the main thing that people like to talk about now is why was Claggard so fixated on Billy?
0: Right, which, as you you described earlier, the I think there's very legitimate reason. I don't think Herman Melville was projecting any, you know, no homoeroticism onto the per se, yeah. yeah, situation. But that
1: is one of the most popular, and it's 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 defensible for sure. It makes sense. It could be that you know Claggart had this um, sublimated homosexual urges or feelings. Maybe he was gay himself, but there was like this self-hatred. And then this beautiful young man comes in and he's so attracted to him. And and the feelings that Billy stirs up in him creates a hatred because he doesn't want to be exposed. He doesn't want to, uh, to, or even acknowledge, obviously to himself, his own feelings. Totally defensible interpretation. I just think that it becomes kind of facile because of the, the depth of the existential issues in the book, and how Melville's really trying to troll into the archetypal levels. But I think that that homoeroticism totally exists in the ver, in the film version. Right. Then we get to Beau Travai. Beau was made in 1999 by Claire Denis. Um, she loosely based it on... Billy Budd so it doesn't follow it exactly it's not at sea it's in the desert right which is a giant sea of sand (laughs) and it takes place with uh, in the French Foreign Legion in Algeria I believe so yeah Uh, uh, Djibouti is in the Republic of Djibouti on the Horn of Africa so uh, which is uh, obviously a French colonial possession at the time or time they tell the story
0: it's a beautiful movie and it has, yeah, it's it's stunning visually to me. The blue, like the marine, aquamarine of the blue water when they go swimming, the, ocean. the the sand, the you know rippling masculine torsos,
1: oh, uh, <laughs> li- lightly slicked with sweat. Right. <laughs> yeah. Very 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 beautiful. And also, um, the film itself is. The way uh, Denis filmed it, it the, the, there's actual, really, choreography. Like, when they're in their full gear and they are doing maneuvers and they're practicing, there's a balletic quality to their uh, movements and to the, their, the precision of their placement. And, I mean, it's just a pleasure to watch the beauty of these, these movements. Um, and, and there's the young man, who is Billy Bud. And the Billy Bud character, he's not called Billy Bud in the in the film. His actual name is So, he's not called Billy. His French name Gilles in the in the film and he is basically he's the Billy character though. He's beautiful, he's um, beloved, he gets along with everybody, but he's also again pretty simple. I mean, just a simple man. And then there is Galoup, I guess is his name, who is a um, officer, and he's the claggart. Now, the Captain Ver part is, is minimized, is not important. It isn't a triangle in this one. It's just between the two, really, the two men. Most of the actors in this had been in the French Foreign Legion. So they all knew the, the maneuvers, they knew the life, so mm-hmm. it's very realistic in terms of what they're doing. And th- they do amazing calisthenics, like I was saying, very balletic. And these are all things that, sh- that she learned from them that they did in the French Foreign Legion. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool.
0: I think, was it shot on location?
1: Yeah, they went to Djibouti to shoot it.
0: And so you get a bit of the the city and a bit of the countryside and the city life, and a bit of the impact that the French Legionnaire had by occupying um, those cities. When the men go out for the nightlife, and there's girls at the club, and there's no like, real explicit commentary one way or the other. She kind of like lets you judge for yourself, but just by observing, there's becomes a very toxic sort of sex trade for favours or for whatever comes along with the status of being with the legionnaire and so all
1: of that's very interesting. Yeah, the occupier being part of that. Exactly. And also so there's a lot in the subtext of the movie that is about uh socio political commentary. So it adds a richness underneath the story of these two men and their I don't know if you call it conflict or not, but it's interesting because it is the French Foreign Legion. So they're not French. So they're not French, Um, so they're all different nationalities. And so um, Billy, you know, he's, he's somewhat dark skinned, uh, dark haired, dark eyed, you know, uh, looked like, I don't know. They, I don't know if they said in there where he was from, Um, but it's, but yet they are also the colonialist forces, even though they're not actually French. So, it's, it just kind of adds another layer of the complexity of how these things all intertwine together. And then, another aspect that enriches, I think, the film is that she uses the music by the great uh, British composer Benjamin Britten, who wrote an opera called Billy Budd. Mm. And so, she uses the opera music from Billy Budd to score the film. Cool. I want to rewatch that. So, we highly recommend that movie. We do. Yeah, there's a, a definite hungry watching of the um the officer of billy and at the same time a and in the hunger there's like a a kind of a destructive hunger and also a desirous hunger it seems like i mean it never is really clear that it's particularly homoerotic but it's the, the entire atmosphere of the way this is crafted with these beautiful bodies. Because all the, all the young men are beautiful. In real life, they would not all be that great-looking, great right? <laughs> yeah. And the way they move together, the way they interact, the way they play together. I guess I bridle a little bit at the idea of that homo homoerotic, homoerotic. Basically because I don't really feel that, like it's out and out queer or homosexual for the most part. I mean... It's more that the godlike beauty of these men and the way in which they enjoy their own bodies and, and fill the space of their own bodies with their, make them sensual kind of animalistic beings, you know, the, the, the sensuality of a, of a beautiful cat or whatever. And so that that is homoerotic in the most literal sense of that term which is the eroticism of self. Mm-hmm. And of course, given that they're male, they're all male there, that there's going to be this reflecting, because they are a community, this reflecting kind of beauty and, and eroticism and sensuality among them versus it just being out and out, you know, sexuality or having sex. Because I don't really get the, that they really necessarily want to have sex with each other but they, they have this this bond that goes beyond, that is rooted in a certain physicality. I think, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. I also think that that's the way in which people
0: use the word homoerotic a lot these days. Okay, well, that's great. So yeah. I, I think maybe, and maybe the term has sort of shifted from being more explicitly about the literal meaning Same of gender. the word yeah. and into being sort of almost like, Homo aesthetic or something like yeah, that yeah. it's sort of like a, a sensual aesthetic feel that you get from something rather right. than it actually being that oh there's underlying queerness here
1: right but and and then the question is is the officer well the officer who's fixated on billy is it does it have a homosexual aspect to it or is it a homoerotic envy where he's looking at Billy, sort of as the, for some reason, it's Billy and not one of the other ones, who, because this guy is not good looking. Mm-hmm. He's got the acne. Yeah. yeah, he's older. He's definitely older. He's in his 40s. And he's small. He's not buff. He's got acne scars. I mean, he's fa- I mean, he's a normal-looking, f- you know, he's not ugly. I think he's buff, actually. Okay, but... maybe he was buff, sorry. But he's not tall. Right. When he's clothed, he doesn't look buff. <laughs> Where these guys, when they're clothed, they still look buff. I don't know <laughs> if you will, you know. But anyway, he, he's, he's a normal, okay dad, you know, not, not a hot dad. So there's something about that enviousness, almost like that Billy is like a prick in his soul. Yeah, you know that he's got to get this thorn out of his soul. Now the officer that is over him, I'll call him the captain, whatever. He's gay. Mm-hmm. He's hot for these guys. He's always looking at them with his binoculars. He'd love to get with him in the shower. You know, he they, they he it's he's overtly gay and out and out. So there is that. But I don't feel that that impacts. Or really informs. Did you feel informed any of the other dynamics? Not that I remember. That's yeah. the thing. I don't. I, I watched it a little longer ago than you.
0: I don't remember perfectly well. Which yeah. is why I'm glad that you're saying all of this. Because I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that it necessarily informs anything in particular. I think for the Claggart character. Even if he is gay. And there's queer desire there. It's so repressed and stuff that. His existential angst is that he could never realize it. So right, It's right. never going to be an actual thing. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. And so he'll never get rejected. Yeah, that's true. But and then and he has a woman, a native woman, that basically he supposedly loves. He seems certainly acts like she's pregnant with his child, and he's he's supporting her and everything. And then uh, basically the same. It follows basically the kind of same trajectory, kind of, in that. Um, But instead of uh, the young man stammering, the officer is becoming a uh, martinet, and he's punishing Billy. He's coming up with all these punishments, kind of like tortures. And so he's punishing one of the men from the unit and making him, uh, not allowing him to have food or water in in the hot sun. I mean, this is a desert man. So Billy defies uh, him and gives the guy water. So Billy's a bit more active, in this story, unlike the Billy in Billy Budd, who's very passive, he's just a symbol. Uh, this guy, he actually takes a moral stance. Gives the guy water. Um, then he's going to get uh, punished. He's made to dig holes, and ultimately he punches the Claggart character. So it's not involuntary punch. He does it on purpose. He's so angry, and then he ends up having to go out into the desert. With no water and he practically dies
0: the cligert character gives him like bad directions or something like that he sabotages him
1: that's right he broke the watch that had the compass in it right i think that was it and gives him bad directions and so he ends up in a place where to at, at the place where there's water but it's salt water right it's a salt lake and he ends up collapsing and okay here's the end he is picked up by a native. can't even believe he's still alive because he's been lying in the baking sun. And he's put on a bus. I guess they, they ride a lot on, on various buses. And he, and there's this native woman, very tenderly, very sweetly, like just moistening his lips with a little water, giving him a little water a bit at a time, reviving him. And, he's, uh, and you can decide whether he's saved or not. Um, but, and this is the part that's very interesting, is that Claggart is... Caught having done this misdeed, and he's drummed out of the French Foreign Legion and sent back to France. And it's just sort of like he just leaves, doesn't leave any money with the woman who's having his child, just walks away, just leaves. And he is now nothing because his position to him was everything. And he ultimately shoots himself, commits suicide. <laughs> Claire Denny. <laughs> Beautiful. At the end, she kind of creates uh, hell as kind of like this this weird disco where he's like wearing his, his leisure weekend clothes and he's does this insane St. Vitus dance of in his disco environment. I don't know.
0: Yeah, the final scene it goes from him pulling the trigger to this disco. I loved the last scene. I thought that oh, was, I great. was brilliant. Yeah, I interpreted it at first after I watched it as it was the soul that he never got to express, like this wild dance oh, and stuff. Oh, okay. But I like your interpretation that it's hell. Yeah, <laughs> and he's
1: contorting himself. Yeah, and yeah. That's his 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 punishment, and and so it's a very beautiful reworking of Billy Budd, and because it's more modern, it speaks to me more. Yeah, a lot more. Yeah. So that's those. Great works of art. If you want to get in touch with us, all of them are shoot us out an email to Foibles Podcast it all at gmail We'd love to hear from you. I'll make it make Thanks sense. Thanks for listening. Oh, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> you <for> my editor <laughs> in chief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.